If there were any doubt that Steph Curry is the greatest shooter ever, what you're about to see will end that doubt. After Warriors practice Saturday, Curry decided to get some extra three-pointers up. And he just kept making them. And making them. And making them. He hit 105 in a row. 105. Someone from the Warriors started recording after the first two, so there are 103 of them on video. His shooting streak lasted for five minutes, so we're just going to let it run picture in picture while we continue the show so you can see them all. He's just made 100 threes in a row. I mean, I celebrated making 10 free throws in a row. I don't know if I can make 100 layups. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, no, but I'm serious. You have a, a momentary lap, so you, oh, yeah. you leave one short, one bounces off the rim. I mean, 105. Unbelievable. Oh, oh work on your game. <laughs> That that's un that may be the most amazing thing I've ever seen in sports. That I, I, when they when they talked about it, I'm like, there's no way that they didn't mess with the filming, but they did not mess with the filming. Steve Kerr, what do you think about what you just saw? 105 three pointers in a row. I mean, that is amazing. Over five minutes, nonstop shooting, nailing threes. I mean, this guy can shoot the lights out. Steph Curry is arguably the greatest shooter of the basketball in the history of the NBA. The guy has a 41% three-point shooting percentage. That means he makes over four out of 10 three-pointers that he attempts to take. That is absolutely incredible. And that record, 105 in a row that he just, uh, that he just shot that we saw on video, that's impressive. I mean, you think about doing, I mean, almost anything 105 times in a row, but three-pointers from the NBA range, that is, that's some serious shooting. That's an impressive feat. I was thinking about uh, Steph Curry's 105 three-pointers and his incredible shooting percentage this week as I read through our passage this morning, the prophecy that we're going to look at here in Daniel chapter 11 and 12. And, you know, as I thought about Steph Curry and how impressive his record is, the reality is, friends, we have a God who has a record that far surpasses anything that Steph Curry's done on the basketball court. In fact, while Steph Curry might shoot 41%, we have a God who is shooting 100% when it comes to his prophecies about history. In fact, it's really interesting, when you study the Bible, what you discover is that over one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. Did you know that, friends? A quarter of the Bible is prophecy. Over 1,800 prophecies in Scripture. And guess what? They have all been precisely fulfilled, at least those that have already taken place in history. There are still some that we're waiting for. But friends, with God's track record, we can be confident that his prophetic word is true. He hits 100% of the time. When we talk about prophecy as Christians, friends, we are not talking about Nostradamus or Rasputin or Gene Dixon, you know, these, these vague quasi-prophets out there who make these, you know, vague predictions. No, we are talking about the sovereign God of history who declares what is to come and then what he declares comes to pass 100% of the time. Is that awesome? 
I think it is pretty awesome. We've been seeing that repeatedly this winter through our series in the book of Daniel. We're going to see this again today as we come to Daniel chapters 11 and 12. Remember, we're, we're in the final section of the book of Daniel. Daniel received this prophecy at the end of his ministry in Babylon. It was roughly 536, 535 BC when Daniel received this prophecy. Uh, a messenger from God, an angelic visitor, visitor that we saw last week, came to Daniel to give him an answer about what was going to take place in the days to come for God's people. That's, that's the backdrop for the prophecy that we're going to see here this morning. And excuse me, Daniel 11, uh, 10 through 12 is one big unit. It is the last prophecy in the book of Daniel. It is the longest prophecy in the book of Daniel. And it is the most detailed prophecy in the book of Daniel. And so this prophecy absolutely deserves our attention. And again, I want to remind you, friends, as we read this prophecy, we're going to see beginning today and into next week that much of what God has prophesied has already taken place, fulfilled exactly as he said it would in history, and the things that he's prophesied that we're still waiting to come to pass, we can be confident that those things too will happen just as God declared. And so we're going to look at this incredible prophecy here this morning. Uh, we're going to get through as much of this prophecy today as we can. If we don't finish it today, we're going to finish it next week, our last week in the book of Daniel next Sunday. And uh, just to give you a little preview of where we're going here, two weeks from today, we're going to be starting a new sermon series that's going to take us through the end of this spring into early summer, a new sermon series in the book of Jude. And uh, this, this next series, friends, I think is going to be so important and so timely for us today because Jude, who was the half-brother of Jesus, the earthly brother of Jesus, one of the leaders in the early church, he wrote this letter to encourage Christians to contend for the faith, to, to fight, to defend the faith. Why? Because there was false teaching that was going to come. And it was going to come and infiltrate God's church. And that was taking place 2,000 years ago, and it is taking place today on unprecedented levels. And we as Christians need to know what God's word teaches, and we need to stand firm in the truth, and we need to contend earnestly for the faith as Jude encourages us in verse 3. So we're going to have a great time over six weeks studying the book of Jude together, and then we're going to move into our summer series called The Ten Great Freedoms, uh, looking at the Ten Commandments and uh, how each of the Ten Commandments actually produces great freedom in our lives when we trust God and live out his, his will for our lives. So we're going to have some exciting things here in the next few weeks together. But today, we're going to conclude or begin our conclusion of the book of Daniel looking at this incredible prophecy. I'm going to invite you to pray with me real quick. Uh, I, and I'm going to just ask you, would you be praying for me as I preach? I have been sick all week. Um, and I am literally like, I'm here, and I'm going to fight through this morning, but it's going to be uh, God's grace and power at work through me today uh, more than ever because uh, I just honestly don't feel all that great. So um, let's pray and ask God's blessing and the Holy Spirit to work. Heavenly Father, we just thank you uh, that we have the privilege of studying this incredible book, that we have the blessing of seeing your fulfilled prophecy and that in all of this, Lord, we have the opportunity to, ex to experience just a greater, grander vision of who you are as the sovereign God of history. Our God, our personal God who loves us, who promises to never leave us or forsake us. 
And so, Lord, I pray that we're encouraged once again as we look to your word. And uh, God, give me strength as I preach, Lord. I pray that you give me the stamina to get through this message and that it would be a blessing, Lord, as we look to your promises today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we move into Daniel chapter 11 and 12, remember the angelic visitor has come to Daniel. Daniel was praying, he was fasting, right? That's what God's people do in times of strife, in times of trouble. They go to the Lord in prayer and fasting. We're gonna do that Thursday night in the National Day of Prayer. We're gonna come together to pray. But Daniel was praying and God sent an answer to his prayers, an angelic messenger to tell him what was gonna take place in the days to come. And in Daniel 11 through 12, in this prophecy, we find God doing a number of things. Number one, the first thing that we see God doing here in this prophecy is preparing the world for the coming of Christ. Daniel chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, God begins to set the stage for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at this passage together. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up today. We're going to be going through this passage sequentially here this morning and talking about these various sections as we go. So now the angel says to Daniel, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others beside these." Now, believe it or not, this is an incredible prophetic word from the Lord, okay? We oftentimes take God's prophetic word for granted because many of us as Christians who have grown up, you know, hearing about prophecies, studying the Bible, we've read these things many times. But I want you to think about what Daniel is saying here, all right, to, or what the angel's telling Daniel for God's people, the Israelites, The angel here, on behalf of God, is telling Daniel, Daniel, here's what's going to happen in the coming years. There's going to be three more rulers over the Persian Empire. Remember, Daniel was currently under the rule and authority of Cyrus, who had conquered Babylon. And the angel from God tells Daniel, there's going to be three more rulers, Daniel. And then after that third ruler, there's going to be a fourth, who's even greater than the other three, richer than the other three. He's going to stir up trouble against the people of Greece. And then, Daniel, after that, another ruler is going to come greater than all who's going to take dominion over the whole world. All right? Now, think about what this angelic messenger from God is telling you. This would be like me telling you this morning, let me tell you who are the next three presidents of the United States. Okay? I'm going to prophesy the next three presidents of the United States... Then I'm going to tell you there's going to be a fourth greater than all the rest of them. And then the guy who comes after him, he's not going to be a president. In fact, there's not even going to be a United States at that point. This is going to be a whole new ruler, a whole new empire. I mean, imagine hearing that, right? That that would blow your mind to receive a prophecy like that. But that's what the angel tells Daniel. And that is exactly what took place in history. Just as God declared, three more rulers came after Cyrus. Cambyses, Gamada, Darius the Great. We know this from history. God's prophetic word was fulfilled just like he declared. 
after Darius the Great, a fourth Persian ruler came to power named Xerxes. And Xerxes was the greatest of all. He was the most powerful of all. And Xerxes went out and basically attempted to conquer the whole world. And when God tells us that Xerxes would stir up all against the kingdom of Greece, that's exactly what Xerxes did. Xerxes took an army, some historians put this army at between a million and two million men who marched across the Near East from Persia to Greece and attempted to conquer Greece. Now, for those of you who aren't necessarily history buffs, maybe you recall in the movies, right? Back in 1962, there was a movie called The 300 Spartans. Back in 2006, there was another movie called The 300. And, and these movies were all about the, the great battle of Thermopylae where 300 Spartan soldiers held off the army of Xerxes. That was history, friends. That's not Hollywood. That's history. That's God's prophetic word that he declared in advance. That all took place. And so what happened was is Xerxes came against Greece. He tried to conquer Greece. Xerxes was basically humiliated and repelled, and millions of his men were destroyed by the Greeks, and he was forced to turn tail and flee back to Persia. And that basically was the end of the Persian Empire when Xerxes was defeated in Greece uh, at Thermopylae in 480 B.C. Now again, God had prophesied all of this. He had told God's people what was going to take place. Now after Xerxes was defeated, another ruler comes to power just like God declares. In verses 3 through 4, we read in Scripture, then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity. Now again, friends, what's God's prophetic track record? What's his shooting percentage? He's shooting 100%, right? Now, God tells us this is what's going to take place. And what happened then after the time of Xerxes? A new kingdom rose up. The Greek empire came to power. Alexander the Great ultimately rose to prominence in the Greek nation. And Alexander the Great became the world's greatest conqueror up till that point in history. He ended up conquering the whole known world starting when he was 20 years old. He goes out, he conquers the whole known world all right, he ends up dying in Babylon at the age of 32 as an alcoholic because he was so depressed he had nothing else to live for after conquering the whole known world. Isn't that sad? I mean, it, it reminds me of what Jesus talks about in, in uh, Mark 8, 36 when he says, what profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And that's exactly the situation, the story with Alexander the Great. But again, God prophesied all of this. We already saw this back in, Romans, in, back in Daniel chapter 8, the prophecy of the ram and the goat. You remember we talked about that prophecy? The, the, the goat in that prophecy was Alexander the Great. And when Alexander the Great died, just like God's word declares, his kingdom was divided. His empire was divided, scattered across the four winds. Just like God's word said. Not to his posterity, not to one of his children, but his four generals would take over his kingdom. And his kingdom was then divided between these four generals, Seleucus, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, Cassander. 
Now, this is important. This division is important. It's not only important because of what we're going to see next in the next set of prophecies here in Daniel chapter 12, but it's also important because now that Greek has been divided, this begins to set the stage for the rise of a new world power, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire would ultimately take advantage of this weekend Greek empire, and the Roman Empire out of Rome, out of Italy, would ultimately become the conquerors of the whole world. Now, here's the thing, friends. What does all of this have to do with God preparing the world for Christ? Well, it has everything to do with it. Because remember, God is the sovereign author of history. None of these things happen by mistake. This was all part of God's prophetic plan working towards the coming of Jesus Christ. In fact, when we get to the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the apostle Paul tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. See, God was using all of these events in world history to pave the way, preparing the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. Through the Persian Empire, What was God doing? God used the Persian Empire to free the Jews out of their captivity in Babylon. The Persians sent the Jews home back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, where they were allowed to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The Jews needed to be in Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where God's promised Messiah was to come from, from Bethlehem, from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, right? So so they needed to be back in Jerusalem. And God used the Persian Empire to pave the way. God used the Greeks, Alexander the Great, when he conquered the whole known world. He instituted a process known as Hellenization. And that was basically the the goal of making everybody around the world just like the Greeks. That's what Hellenization means, to, to make you like the Greeks. And so Alexander the Great forced everybody to learn a common language. And so the whole known world started speaking Koine Greek. All right, so now there's a common language. During that Greek empire, during those four divided generals that we saw on the map, the Greek Septuagint was written. And the Greek Septuagint is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament translated into Greek. That took place around the mid-2nd century B.C., So about 150 years before Jesus, now the whole world speaks a common language. They all have access to the Old Testament. What's significant about that? Well, now they can read the over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament telling the world that the Messiah is coming. See, friends, God was working his plan, paving the way through these world empires. And then the Romans are going to come into the picture. After the Greeks, the Roman Empire arises. And the Roman Empire instituted the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, uh, an unparalleled era up to that time in history of peace and safety and prosperity. The Roman Empire created an opportunity where the whole world had a system where they were interconnected with roads. They created a communication system, a postal system, where mail could be safely distributed and, and passed around the world. Why was God doing all of that? He was doing all of that to pave the way for the spread of the gospel. After Jesus' death and resurrection and he sends out the church into the world to share the good news that the Savior has come, the Roman Empire was the perfect climate for that to take place. All of these letters that we read in the New Testament, the letter of Jude that we're going to start studying, how does a letter get passed around, right? 
you have to have a postal system to distribute the mail, right? Again, the Roman Empire made all of that possible in a way that was never present in the world before. Now, none of this happened by chance. This was the, the miraculous working of a sovereign God who orchestrates all of history, all right? Again, God's prophetic word is absolutely incredible. So God was preparing the world for Christ. The second thing that we see here in Daniel 11 through 12 is that God was revealing to us the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist. Now, I don't know that we're going to get there today. If we don't get there today, we're going to get there next week. Next week, or or maybe today, we're going to start looking at the second half of chapter 11 into the first half of chapter 12, where God begins to prophetically tell us more about this figure known as the Antichrist the ruler who's going to come at the end times during the period of tribulation. Again, we might get there today, but if not, we'll go there next week. But before that, God also wants his people to be aware that there is in this world at work today a spirit of the Antichrist, a spirit of the Antichrist. In fact, in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, the apostle John tells us, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John tells us that the spirit of the Antichrist is already present in the world. What is this Antichrist spirit, friends? It's nothing less than satanic and demonic opposition to the will of God. And it's present in the world already. In fact, the spirit of the Antichrist has been at work in the world since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And this Antichrist spirit's primary goal is to thwart God's plans, destroy God's people, and keep as many as possible from finding salvation in a relationship with him. Jesus describes this Antichrist spirit in John 10.10 where he says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. That's the goal of the Antichrist spirit at work in the world, to steal, kill, and destroy. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the Apostle Paul speaks of this Antichrist spirit when he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. There he's speaking about Satan and this antichrist spirit that has infiltrated our world. He says in Ephesians 6:12 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, believe it or not, there is an antichrist spirit at work in the world seeking to destroy, seeking to thwart God's will, seeking to keep as many people as possible from a saving relationship with their creator. And we see the evidence of this antichrist spirit at work all over in our world today. You look, for example, just in recent days at at the laws being passed in our nation, both at the federal level and the state level. You think about what was signed into law just this past week here in the state of Minnesota. Laws basically allowing abortion on demand, the most radical abortion laws anywhere in the nation. Uh, Laws promoting and and, uh, protecting so-called gender conversion therapy, right? All right, friends, these are anti-God, anti-biblical laws that are being passed. This This is all being fueled by the spirit of the Antichrist. 
This, this past week, some in our state legislature are proposing passing a hate speech registry for the state of Minnesota, where if anybody deems that somebody said something offensive or insulting, they can report you to a state registry as somebody who is promoting hate. Now, now just so you know, I already sent in my RSVP to the governor, <laughs> all right? Be, because the reality is, is this is what we're talking about. We're talking about even preachers who speak the truth of God's word. Now anybody can claim that they were offended and all of a sudden your name's in the state hate speech registry. This is the spirit of the Antichrist at work in our world today, friends. We see this this past week. I saw a news article, the CDC reported just this last week that a quarter of teenagers in our nation now identify as LGBT. 25% of the teenagers in the United States today identify as LGBT. That was just reported this last week. Now, friends, first and foremost, number one, that is absolutely not true. Those kids might report that and think that, but it's not true. What's going on today is there is a social contagion at work in our nation that's being driven by the spirit of Antichrist through our media, through our political climate, through our educational system, convincing kids that, that they're LGBT. All right? This is anti-God. This is anti-biblical. It's fueled by the spirit of Antichrist that John tells us is already in the world. The CDC also reported this last week. Last year, a third of teenage girls in our nation considered committing suicide. Friends, that's the spirit of Antichrist who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. You better believe it, friends, when Paul tells us that we don't wage war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, the authorities over this present darkness. That is absolutely true. And you don't think coming together to pray on Thursday night is important? Friends, we need to be praying like never before. But in our passage this morning, we see this spirit of Antichrist at work in verses 5 through 35. The spirit of the Antichrist who raises up kings and armies that for roughly 200 years are going to repeatedly harass and hinder God's returned exiles seeking to rebuild Jerusalem. Let's take a look at Daniel chapter 11 verses 5 through 20 and see how this spirit of Antichrist was at work as God's people went to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. <laughs> then the king of the south shall be strong. Now again, remember, this is all prophecy. God was telling this in Daniel's day about what was going to take place over the next two and a, two and a, 250 years. Okay, He's telling God's people, this is what you can expect over the next 250 years. He says, then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger. Then he shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. 
His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage." Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands, and they shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put to end his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. All right? Now here we have roughly 250 years of God's prophetic word about what is going to come to pass. Now you might be thinking, how in the world do you make sense of any of this, Jason? And I tell you what, that's what I was thinking last Sunday afternoon when I started studying this passage. What in the world, Lord, am I going to do with this? All right? But here's what's taking place. Let me simplify this for you. By the way, John Calvin, in his commentary on Daniel, he spends over 40 pages breaking down in minute detail how all of these things that I just read were historically fulfilled. I'm going to summarize it for you in one slide, okay? <laughs> Here in Daniel 11, verses 5 through 20, what we read about are the kings of the south and the kings of the north, okay? And again, we could spell this out in precise detail for you. But everything that takes place here in these verses, this is what happened. There was a Ptolemaic dynasty that was reigning in Egypt. Remember, Alexander's four, four generals divided up his kingdom. Two of them rose to prominence, Ptolemy in Egypt and Seleucus up in Syria. They would become the king of the south and the king of the north, them and their dynasties. And so you can see here the historical order of all of these kings, the kings of the south, the kings of the north. And basically what would take place is over 250 years, which we just read about, during those 250 years, these two empires are playing ping pong and Israel is the net, all right? Have you ever played ping pong before? What happens to the net? The net gets beat up, right? The nets get torn up and ripped up, right? And God wanted his people to know, look at these two empires are coming. And for 250 years, they're going to be battling back and forth. Oh, and by the way, guess who's right in the middle of them? Egypt, Syria, what's right in the middle? Israel right? So they're going to bear the brunt of a lot of this. God wanted his people to be aware of that, but he also wanted them to know that he was in control and that it was going to come to an end. 
So these two empires are playing ping pong back and forth. Israel's getting, getting beat up, caught in the midst of all of this. Now let me just give you one example of how incredible God's prophetic word is, okay? We, again, John Calvin, if you want to read 40 pages worth of history, I can give you commentaries I read this week. I mean, like I, like I was already sick and my eyes were like, I was glazing over, bloodshot, trying to get through all this history. Like you can get the history. If you really want the history, everything God said happened. It all came true. Let me give you one example. Chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. In verse 6, we read about this daughter of the king of the south. That's real history. That daughter of the king of the south was a woman named Bernice. She was the daughter of Ptolemy II, up there on the left side, the second from the top. Bernice was the daughter of Ptolemy II. She married Antiochus II of Syria. But this was a political marriage. It was an arranged marriage. And Antiochus II, in order to marry Bernice, he had to divorce his first wife. Now, as you can imagine, the first wife wasn't very excited about this. So the first wife, or some of her supporters, ended up poisoning Bernice. And Bernice was cut off, just like God's prophetic word tells us. Bernice is poisoned and killed, and guess what happens then? Antiochus ends up remarrying his first wife, but Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, he's not too happy about what happened to his sister. So Ptolemy III goes out seeking revenge, just like God's word tells us here in verses 6 through 9. He marches his army up against the Syrians, and Ptolemy III attacks Syria, loots all of its temples. Josephus, the first century Roman historian, tells us that Ptolemy III returned to Egypt with 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver. Friends, a talent is 75 pounds. That means he stole from Syria 300,000 pounds of gold and 3 million pounds of silver and all of their sacred objects from the temples. Friends, what does verse 8 tell us? Verse 8 says exactly that. Verse 8 tells us what's going to happen. The king of the south is going to go up. He's going to carry off to Egypt their gods, their metal images, their precious vessels of silver and gold, right? This all took place historically just like God prophesied it. Isn't that awesome? That's just one example. And again, we could go through all of the history. All of this was fulfilled exactly as God's word declared, okay? These were prophecies given by God to Daniel 300 years earlier that were precisely fulfilled in history. Now we see this spirit of the Antichrist most clearly in the next individual that God's prophetic word uh, to Daniel talks about, a figure known to history as Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is probably next to Hitler the most hated man in the history of the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes did more damage to the Jews in the ancient world than any other person. We first saw Antiochus Epiphanes back in Daniel chapter 8. But let's take a look at what Daniel prophesies about Antiochus Epiphanes here in verses 21 through 35. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. 
And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break, shall break with him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the, appointed, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him. And he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Now again, friends, this is all about what took place during the reign of this wicked ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes. Between 168 and 164, he unleashed his hatred upon the Jewish people. See, Antiochus Epiphanes, his goal was to complete the work of Alexander the Great. He wanted to finish the Hellenization process. And one of the only groups in the world who refused to bow to the Greek Hellenization were the Jews. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, he hated the Jews. And so over four years, he ends up murdering over 100,000 Jews, selling over 40,000 Jews into slavery. He plundered the temple. He defiled the temple. He set up the abomination uh, of desolation. He sacrificed a pig on God's altar, sacrificed a pig to Zeus on the altar of the one holy God of Israel and desecrated the temple. He prohibited the Jews from temple worship, prohibited circumcision, prohibited Sabbath, prohibited festival days, destroyed every copy of Scripture he could find. This guy was absolutely wicked and evil, all right? Now, again, we could talk about how all of God's prophetic word was specifically fulfilled. Let me give you just one example here. Chapter 11, verses 29 through 30. Chapter 11, 29 through 30 tells us about a time when he will return, come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before, for the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. That's the people of Israel, the Jews. Now this is really fascinating because what took place in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes went a second time, just like God's prophetic word tells us, back to Egypt to try to plunder more of Egypt's treasures. He brought his army down. He started marching towards Alexandria. But this time, 
as God's word tells us, the ships of Kittim came against him. Kittim was an ancient world name for Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, where the Roman navy was stationed. And the Roman navy comes down and cuts off Antiochus's army before they get to Alexandria. And a Roman uh, senator who was with the navy, a guy by the name of Gaius Papilius Linnaeus, how many of you ever heard the term drawing a line in the sand? Right? It comes from this prophecy. Papilius Linnaeus comes to Antiochus Epiphanes and he says, look at, understand this Antiochus, if you attack Alexandria, you are attacking the Roman Empire. And if you don't want all of Rome against you, you're going to turn back right now and go to Syria, go back to Syria. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes says, you know, let me think about this for a while. Let me go back and consult with my generals. And Linnaeus, you know what he does? He draws a circle in the sand around Antiochus Epiphanes, a line in the sand. And he says, you make your decision before you step out of this circle. But if you step out of this circle headed towards Alexandria, understand all of Rome is going to come against Syria. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, just like God's word prophesied, turned tail, went back to Assyria. He was so enraged that he unleashed hell on earth against the Jewish people. Again, this was all prophesied according to God's word. Another prophecy here in God's word, verse 32. God's word tells us that when this takes place, the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Friends, this is a reference to the Maccabean revolution that took place beginning in 167 BC. The faithful Jews in Israel who rose up and stood against the oppression of Antiochus Epiphanes led by the uh, Maccabean family, the godly priest Matthias and his son Judas Maccabee, the hammer. And they drove out Antiochus Epiphanes over four years. They rededicated the temple in 164 BC. That's what the Jews celebrate at Hanukkah. God did all of this just like he prophesied. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. What a word for us today, friends, as we see the the spread of the spirit of the Antichrist in our world. We need God's people today to stand firm and take action like never before. Let me just close with this. Why did God give Daniel such a detailed prophecy here? Next week, we're going to continue looking at God's prophetic word about the Antichrist and the end times. But why did God give us such a detailed prophecy? Number one, to emphasize his sovereignty. Revelations 22, 13, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God is sovereign all over all of history, friends. He's in control. He gave us his prophetic word to encourage us, to encourage his people. You know, I, I read passages like Psalm 23 in a whole different light, knowing God's prophetic word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Friends, when you understand that our good shepherd is the sovereign God who oversees all of history, that, that whole psalm takes on a whole new light. He shall lead me through the valley of the shadow of death. I shall fear no evil because the sovereign God of history is my good shepherd. And then God gave us these prophecies to validate his word. When we see his track record, remember our God is shooting 100%. When we look to the prophecies next week, his prophecies about the end times and the Antichrist, we can be confident that those prophecies are also going to come true because the God of history has promised it. So friends, be encouraged. No matter how dark the days may seem, we as God's people can stand firm knowing that our God is in control and we can take action 
living faithfully for the truth of Jesus Christ, sharing the good news and hope that we have in him with confidence because God wins in the end. Let's pray, and then our worship team is going to come and lead us in one last song. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be gathered this morning to study your word, to once again see your sovereign rule and reign over history. We thank you, God, that we can trust in you, that we can have confidence in you, that we can be inspired by the prophecies that you've given us, the promises you've made, promises that encourage us to, to look to who you are and your faithfulness and, and, and your oversight over history and our lives, but also promises that point us to your will and plans for the future, as we're going to see next week, knowing that you are in control, even as this world gets increasingly darker and the spirit of the Antichrist ultimately gives way to the actual real Antichrist who's coming. Lord, we know that you are still in control over all these things, and so we can put our hope and trust in you. I pray, Lord, that nobody here misses out on the opportunity to know you personally, to put their trust in you personally, to, for, to confess their sins and receive forgiveness through Jesus and to walk in a saving, life-giving relationship with the sovereign God of history. We thank you, Jesus, for that great joy and pleasure, that privilege that is ours, knowing you. We pray this in your name. Amen.